Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister third in Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed, actually for the second time, uh, by Dr Lucy Stevenson. Um, Lucy, I, you know that I really don't want to introduce you. I'd much prefer you to introduce yourself. So over to you, please. So my name is uh, Lucy Stevenson. I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist at South Armstrong and Maudsley, and I've... Um, recently had the pleasure of working with Alex um, and a team of other researchers on the Mental Health and Justice Project and we've been looking at advanced decision making and people who have fluctuating capacity. And we are going to get right down into the details of that because the, the, the last time you were here and actually we were just checking before we came online it was actually two years ago um, and two years ago you were, were really helping us think through some of the ideas about and some of the prom you know, promises and challenges of advanced decision making in, in this context. So why are you back? I mean, not that it's not nice to see you, but you know, having what's happened in the last two years. So we've had a real journey, which kind of starts on very conceptual turf and kind of grounded in Greek mythology, um, the, sort of the myth of Ulysses, with kind of Ulysses making an advanced decision to, to bind himself and to, to ask his fellow sailors in his sort of ship on his adventurous voyage to, to bind him to the mast so that he could sail past um, these um, sort of mythical creatures, the sirens, who would try and lure him to his death with this beautiful song. And the idea was that by being bound to the mast, he would be able to resist their singing um, and survive and kind of have this amazing life experience. And this, this worked. Um, and then we, so we, this sort of idea um, caught on in the kind of bioethical literature in the 80s and 90s, really, as, as a thought that um, advanced decision-making might be something that could help people who experience um, severe mental illness, um, particularly sort of people with bipolar um, and sometimes sort of episodic psychotic illnesses, to make advanced decisions about what should happen to them um, during a crisis. Um, and even to the extent that they might want to request coercive treatment um, in, in advance. Um, and there was, there's been a lot of, you know, it's quite an ethically controversial topic, particularly this kind of um, self-binding clause, the mm. making advance request for coercive treatment. Um, and there's been sort of lots of toing and froing in the bioethical literature, but the, the voice of the service users have been missing from the debate um, and actually trying it out on the ground um, and seeing how it works, um, you know, seeing, seeing what doesn't work, finding a way to put it into practice in, you know, busy um, urban uh, setting um, in southeast London. Um, and we were sort of, I think when we last spoke, we were sort of halfway through that journey. We'd, we'd done, um, kind of, we've had a, a good look at the ethical literature, kind of reviewed that quite thoroughly and got a sense of it. Um, and uh, we've sort of got our heads around a conceptual model of how you might make self-binding work within the current legal systems. 
Um, and then we'd kind of really wanted to hear from the service user voice. And we sort of did this big survey asking service users about, you know, their thoughts on self-binding, their experience of self-binding. And we found that actually most were in favour and, and endorsed this as a concept that might help them feel more in control um, of their lives, despite living with um, severe mental illness. And then we kind of, I think when we spoke, we'd done um, this sort of focus group study asking um, with sort of service users, family members, health professionals, lawyers, AMPs, care coordinators, everybody important we could think of, as well as kind of several um, sort of frontline clinical multidisciplinary teams, service user led organisations. Um, and really kind of got their thoughts on, you know, key issues to actually put this idea into practice. And we kind of co-produced this template um, with the people involved in this focus group and consultation process. Um, and at um, just at the beginning of the pandemic, we were about to put it into practice um, in South East London. Um, and now um, we've kind of been through that process. So we've worked with a group of service users um, and other people involved in their care to really get an in-depth understanding of, you know, the lived experience um, of putting these type of documents into practice. And it's almost impossible to summarise this fact in two words, but not in two words, I, you know, even five minutes. But can you just give us a sense of that, that journey and your reflection? Well, I'd actually love two things, really. Your, your reflections on the journey and, you know, what it's told us and actually your reflections of, on having been through that journey. So in other words, what does it tell us almost more broadly? And actually, I just also really like to hear about your experience of having been through that journey. So should we start with the kind of the macro level and then and then sort of zoom in onto you? Yeah, um, I mean, I think um, it just... I think probably the biggest privilege of this project has has been the centrality of co-production and service user involvement um, and I think you know that's that's once you've really understood how that can be incorporated into research you can't go back because you you, you really kind of profoundly get just how important it is you know because having read all these ethical debates about kind of um you know academics really carefully considerately making important points about um you know important ethical considerations that have to be taken into account when people are making these big life decisions um and then hearing um you know having that challenged um by the service users by the people who are actually impacted um it's you know it's, it's quite profound i mean it sounds it sounds so obvious <laughs> doesn't it but i think really having um really having felt it um, has has been, you know, an, a, an incredibly important thing for me, um, and I think what we, what I learned from service users was about how they balance, how they've sort of balanced those arguments in their mind, um, and we really got to appreciate that the journey that they go on um, making these documents, and you know, we 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 understood. We tried to understand as best we could from the service users about how for them um you know starting in a place where they felt really quite oppressed by services they've you know all of the service users we spoke to had, had some kind of traumatic experience um as a result of their illness or as a, as a result of their treatments um and yet sort of despite these 
very difficult experiences. Um, they were willing to risk hope that change could happen. Um, and they were willing to kind of um, work with loved ones and health professionals um, to, you know, to, to, to take a risk that things could be different in the future. And, and I think that, you know, I sort of, you really felt the weight of that trust and, and the importance of, of the work in kind of really making, really sort of understanding the process and doing everything possible to make sure that trust was, um, yeah, that trust was well placed. I mean, one thing which is immediately coming to my mind is, well, how do we, how do we clone you? In other <laughs> words, in other words, what, what you're describing is a, a, a profound journey which must take time, it must take trust in order even just to generate the document. And that's let alone before how the document makes its way through the system. So kind of, can I just sort of get your reflections on, on that? Because obviously if we're at a point where the government is saying we would really like to ramp up advanced decision-making, quite how it gets formulated in, in, in any new legislation, we're watching at this time. But if you've got that sort of ramp up from the small, you know, the small intense work you're doing to bigger scale, I mean, just your reflections on how, how would we do that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we found that it's not rocket science <laughs> and it doesn't, um, but we had to go through a process to understand that and we had to learn um, from our participants how to do it. And that was the whole ethos of the project mm -hmm. that we were kind of, um, uh, we were sort of facilitating learning from service users, from carers, from professionals. And we were kind of um, taking that in and then sort of feeding it back for them, to them and then sort of checking how that worked, trying something different, learning from them again. And, and what we kind of, um, you know, took a lot of work from them, I think, to help us understand um, you know, to help, us, to help us sort of finally get what, um, what worked. But we, you know, we sort of whittled things down from, I think, you know, when, when we first started, we had this like seven step, very long um, process for, for, for making this document, you know, it was just quite complicated. And we put, you know, we put, we sort of presented this to service users and they just sort of looked aghast and nobody read it and we were and we we're like oh okay <laughs> um this this needs to change um and we've sort of we found that the process of doing this is best communicated in three steps you know first of all the service user drafts their document and then they discuss it with a health professional and then it's disseminated to all the places the service user wants it to go. And we kind of learned about the type of support that people value at each stage. Um, and we, we, we learned about the importance of a neutral supporter to mm -hmm. support the service user in drafting their document. Um, and for the purpose of this project, this was me. Um, and But I found that it didn't, need it didn't sort of require my skills as a psychiatrist what it required was making a date in the diary and meeting with somebody you know in a way that they found accessible and through the pandemic that was largely you know, all of this is done online um, and you know trying to helping people to overcome literacy barriers, um, you know, write, dictating things, um, ha having people dictate things so I could write them down for them, really sort of simple steps like that. And we, we, we sort of 
with the help of the participants, we kind of um, refined a structured template which had a series of prompts. And a drafting session was simply me reading out the prompts that were on the form and the service user, in their own words, giving a response to those and me recording it and then checking with the service user, I'd written down exactly what they said. Um, and so that's quite straightforward, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, with the, with, with the discussions with the health professionals, the health professionals needed some coaching. Um, and that sort of, and, and the way that worked, I'd, I'd sort of go to the teams and do some, um, and do kind of a repeatable training session with them. Um, and often, but I found that, you know, written materials and generalized training only go so far. Um, and health professionals did need a bit of coaching before the sessions. And that sometimes looked like, you know, before we would meet with the service user, having a brief chat um, about um, what needed to be accomplished in the session. And I'd send out a bullet point suggested agenda in advance. So just so the health professionals knew sort of the purpose of the session, what had to be accomplished. But again, that people got, once we'd, once we sort of made it, straightforward once we've got it clear in our own minds what the participants were telling us was needed it was that was quite straightforward and I think so the dissemination stage of it um again that's quite straightforward what we did was simply create a list of options that we called an access plan of all the places mm -hmm. that the document needed to go and I think what we know from the previous research in terms of implementation this is the thing that people get most anxious about with these documents is around accessibility. And that's potentially, um, you know, something that needs really needs to be addressed for the future in terms of digital solutions for accessibility. But I think there are there are plans afoot um, to, to, to manage that on, on a larger scale. Um, so, yeah, that's the sort of a, a watch this space and um, part of it. No, well, thank, it's brilliant. Thank you so much, Lisa, for breaking it down. And it's one of these, almost these situations where what you've just described at one level sounds incredibly simple, <laughs> but it only got to the point of that simplicity through an awful lot of work. Yeah. So in terms of trying to assist other people, as it were, not to have to reinvent the wheel, you know, sort of, can we can we just have a kind of chat about what you've done? I mean, because you've led on the work on thinking about how do we get it so other people don't have to do all of that. Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, I mean, what what we know, so the key the key sort of implementation strategies that participants thought were important were having a structured template um, and having a neutral supporter and having active offers of of, of, sort of giving support with this. And obviously we need um, education and training for health professionals. And we need, um, we sort of, on, on the professional side of things, our kind of experience, rather than coming from the researchers, but our, rather than coming from the participants, but our experience of researchers about what you need to implement this is, um, you know, you, you do need to provide training for professionals, but we think that you really need clinical champions. You need people who can mm -hmm. do that in the moment coaching who can model what to do who can help embed it and we also needed to network within the organization um, to, to, to start to get support I mean ev even on this small scale and certainly on a larger scale for implementation that's really going to be required 
um, and they'll need to be thought about where exactly to embed making offers and providing support for these kind of documents within the structured clinical pathways that you know exist in, in large trusts. Yeah, I mean, you're making me think a lot of, I mean, and I should declare an interest here because I've, I've had involvement with this, but, but a lot of the kind of respect process, yeah. so in relation to advanced decision-making um, on the physical health context where the line has always been very clearly this should not be top down this should be as it were demand led by the organization because if it's pure top down implementation yeah. you're not getting that we think it's important there's a champion and I think there's yeah. uh, you one can see the res you want <laughs> the logic is so clear there it, and it's it, and it is obviously one of those issues where you're trying to scale up something which is when it works it has such obvious merit and it's how you get from that smaller scale to the bigger scale yeah. and can I just ask a really possibly unfair well it's an unfair question at one level I mean you've seen a number of people go through this do you think it's actually helped yeah the individuals yeah. I mean I think you know because that I love and I know you I mean it is completely sincere and, and, and in every way radiates through everything you've done, the, 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 the co-production aspect. But you know, the hard, one hard question is, what do they feel about it having been through, not just making, but trying to implement? Yeah, so the outcome question is a really complicated one. And historically, the success of these documents has been measured by, does this help people avoid admission? You know, because admission is understood as obviously, you know, undesirable for many services for lots of reasons and expensive. Some of the work we've done on self-binding obviously challenges that because many people want to request admission because, you know, on a, on a scale of what's the least worst thing that could happen, potential harms from the illness are worse than the harms from admission. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what we found so the, the paper um, that's just sort of coming out, that really focused on the process of making the document um, and we'll sort of do a sister publication on the longer term follow-up. I, I can give you a sneak preview. Um, and I think what we learned from that is that the very process of making the document in itself, no matter what happens afterwards, can be therapeutic. Um, and people sort of talked about it as a chance to, um, to kind of reflect um, on their illness um, and to really kind of spark new conversations with loved ones and with health professionals. And I think in historically in the literature, there's, there's been a worry that um, it might be a very difficult thing to do. People sort of worry it might be traumatic. It might bring up old conflicts with health professionals. Um, and so we ask service users quite consciously about that. Um, and they, their attitude was, you know, well, yes, it is, um, but, but it's worth it. Uh, and so I think, I mean, I don't think any of them, and, and I, you know, I'm worried about putting words in their mouth, but, but I, I don't think any of the service user participants would say it's been an easy process, you know, it's sort of mm -hmm. been all, all roses, but, and, and they've certainly been through this journey where they've had to overcome a certain amount of ambivalence towards it, but they've decided that for them it's worth the risk, and I think none of them have gone into it um, with rose-tinted spectacles thinking, this is absolutely guaranteed to happen because you know we've been quite upfront with them as part of the process about um, the way things stand at the moment and the current status of these documents. But again, nonetheless, they've decided it's worth it. And, and this sort of theme of 
building alliance really came through as, as an outcome, you know, within themselves, I, because it's sort of the process allowed them to kind of um, generate more of an integrated narrative about what happens to their sense of self um, in a crisis, sort of looking back in a supported environment, and then kind of within their um, you know, within their family groups, having a few more conversations around those difficult moments and what everyone's needs might be, and then you know within the health system as well, getting on board with health professionals. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's a complex it's, it's a complex answer, um, but I, I think overall positive. And then I'd be slightly sorry. I'd be slightly worried if you gave me a very simple answer. Actually, at one <laughs> level, I mean, it would be because this is not a simple area. So a simplistic answer, and I suppose it's a question of how one. I don't know. It may be a question of how one holds that complexity, and also, I mean, how one how one holds the complexity when there starts being evaluations of these things at a bigger scale. Because, as you say, if it's simply does this help avoid admissions that may in fact be you know that may in fact not be the the right thing yeah. i think that's a really yeah it's probably challenging isn't it and and i think the follow-up um speaks to that so we we had you know we've had uh, sort of service users in the project who've had several episodes with their documents and they've had contrasting experiences so, you know, to, to give you the example of one person who, um, you know, has a history of multiple admissions, um, he was, and he, he very clearly wanted to self-bind about having an earlier admission. And, um, that, and that, was, that was absolutely achieved for him. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was taken to hospital. Um, he actually sort of presented himself earlier to services. He was taken to hospital by his dad. Um, you know, the, the A&E, uh, the, the liaison team saw the document on the system and responded to it. Um, and, and he was admitted much earlier than, than he usually would. I mean, it's always, you know, it's hard to judge, but it, it seemed to us. Um, and, and it was, it, I sort of getting the follow up from the treating clinician as well. Um, it was, it made the decision extremely easy, even though it was sort of a fairly low, low octane presentation in comparison with his previous presentations and the clinician you know reported finding it you know it felt good to know that the clinician was acting in the person's in accordance with the person's wishes even though it meant admitting because I think you know sometimes you feel guilty for, for, for admitting somebody um, and you know because it's an incredibly difficult thing but for all concerned but for, but this clinician reported that you know it really felt like the right thing to do and he was really pleased to kind of be able to um to, to, to sort of follow follow that service user's wishes uh partly because i'm luring you into terrain where the paper is not fully is you know this is this is the next paper in the sequence and i'm really glad you've given us really thank you so much for giving this sneak preview i think we'd probably better draw it to, to, to an end there also because we're, we're beginning to run out of time but i um, will definitely want you to come back and talk about some of those complexities in relation to outcomes in, in, in due course but for now lucy thank you so much thank you so much it's i i already know what the title of the episode is going to be which is that phrase of yours risking hope because I just think that really, I just think that captures it completely. So thank you so much for, for, for your time this morning. Pleasure.